According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me if you would, and you're probably already there. Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43. Doug asked you to turn there before he sang verse 2. So I'm the last one to arrive at Isaiah chapter 43. We kind of left Israel hanging last week. Have you been nervous? The end of chapter 42 was not a pleasant spot. And uh, it's a good thing the book doesn't end there. And it's a good thing that we proceed from chapter 42 into chapter 43. Because, uh, yeah, they were in a bad spot. It says, uh, at the end of chapter 42, verse 25 says, He poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle. And it set him aflame all around, yet he did not recognize it, and it burned him, but he paid no attention. I'm trying to think if there's anything worse than being on fire. I guess it's being on fire and not knowing that you're on fire. All right, being on fire and not recognizing, hey, there seems to be a problem here. All right, you're on fire, you're being burned, and you're oblivious to the hand of God's discipline, to the hand of God's judgment and what he's doing. So yes, as chapter 42 comes to an end, good thing we have chapter 43, which opens with, but, and I like that. It's one of those good buts. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And so all of the problems, everything that they're going through is going to be dealt with because God is unfolding his plan. And that's what we're going to see today as we move on into chapter 43. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask the Father to bless our time. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness. From generation to generation, you are faithful. And as you've been faithful with the Jewish people in the nation of Israel, so too, Father, you are faithful with us. You're faithful with the church. You're faithful with each one of us day by day. Father, we ask that we might learn the principles and the patterns that are found here in Isaiah that apply to the nation of Israel and understand where our application comes in. Open our eyes as well, Father, to see the overall plan that's so much bigger than we ever give it credit for. Father, uh, give us the big picture understanding, and I do thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 42 left Jacob slash Israel. The terms are used interchangeably in uh, these chapters. Jacob, of course, is the patriarch who was renamed Israel. Chapter 42 left Jacob slash Israel in a precarious place, but chapter 43 tells them to fear not. All right, fear not. And the circumstances God places us in become the opportunities for us to walk by faith and give an even greater glory to the faithfulness of our Savior who brings us through. In so many cases, of course, if it was up to us, we wouldn't want any part of any of this, right? We would read, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and say, that's a problem. Stay out of that valley, all right? Don't go there. But God takes us there. And he brings us through there, as we sang. God brings us through every place he takes us, and we're better forward on the other side. His son is great, uh, the glory to his son is greater on the other side. It's a part of what we learn, and it's a part of how we grow. And so, fear not. 
When God has put us on a path, the only thing to be fearful of is getting off that path. And it's much more scary to be in disobedience to the will of God and to line yourself up for divine discipline than it is to be obedient to the plan of God and go through some earthly suffering, to go through some earthly circumstances and details that would be otherwise unpleasant. And so we have this. Notice the parallel between Jacob and Israel. This is part of the poetry. And uh, we had it at the end of chapter uh, 42 in verse 24. It was Jacob given up for spoil, Israel given up to plunderers. And the terms are used there in parallel to uh, as a feature of the Hebrew poetry. Same thing that's happening here in chapter 43. But notice how God calls himself here. Created and formed you. I created you and I formed you. And there are actually, there is great theological significance with these terms. It goes all the way back to Genesis 1. It goes all the way back to the foundation of God as the creator and the former, the one who creates and makes and forms and shapes. All right. Just as Adam was created and formed, so too Jacob or Israel is created and formed. All right, and if you've been a part of these studies in the past, then you'll know the vocabulary is bara, to create out of nothing, the ex nihilo creation, where God just simply says, let there be, and there is, right? Like I would love to do sometime, let there be cheeseburger, and nothing shows up. I can't actualize reality based on what I want to happen, but God does. He says, let there be, and there is, that he brings it about as the self-existent being, the I am of the universe. To make something or to form something then is a different vocabulary term. And this talks about the actual shaping, like taking the dust of the earth and shaping it and forming it and molding it. Different term, different concept. And God, of course, does both. We can uh, do the second. We can form pre-existent material. We can take natural resources and mold them and shape them and fashion them and use them to build stuff, all right? And people that are creative in that regard amaze me. They can take lumber and turn it into a pulpit, for example. That, that amazes me, all right? I, if it was left up to me, there'd just be a tree out there in the woods somewhere that would <laughs> never get cut down, never get processed, never get shaped. Uh, not my creative realm. That's the idea of forming. And that's the poetry that we have here, created and formed, both in verse 1 of chapter 43. Uh, Thus says the Lord, your creator and your former, your fashioner, the one who fashioned you, the one who formed you, O Israel. Now, what does God do for no purpose? All right. He has a reason for what he's created. He has a reason for what he's formed. And he's not going to be thwarted by the disobedience of the uh, Jewish people. To, uh, God, in other words, God is not going to be limited to fulfill his unconditional promises, his unconditional covenants. So if you want, uh, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but we have just to uh, refresh our memories on this, Genesis 2 verse 7 and 8, we have these expressions. How the Lord God formed. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. This is the process of forming when the dust was shaped into his physical body and God breathed life into that. I believe it's the breath of lives, plural. I believe it's soul life, spirit life, physical life. The breath of lives poured into this body of dust. 
And what happens when our soul departs from this body? The, the dust returns to the dust. And that's the nature of mortality in Adam. And so it's described there. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And so those are the formed uses in terms of Adam, created and formed. I didn't give you the Barah verses. That's back in uh, chapter 1 where he created man with the Barah vocabulary. So it is too with Jacob slash Israel created and formed created out of nothing all right there was not a jewish race until god selected abraham isaac and jacob and determined that the descendants of abraham isaac and jacob would make up the people the jewish people the people of his earthly inheritance all right so you are mine do not fear for i have redeemed you i have called you by name and you are mine now there's a lot of emphasis here on you in these early verses also in these later verses um the the pronouns that reference israel the pronouns that reference who god is speaking to in a in a direct address it is uh, your creator he who formed you you do not fear for i have redeemed you i have called you by name and you are mine. So how many yous are in that one verse? Okay? There's a whole bunch of yous in that verse. And in many of these early verses, um, some of the things... Did I leave this open? I intended to leave this open from last hour so I could share some of this this hour. Only because it's fun. And because we can. And because I colored them. And just like a kindergartner who likes to color, I like to color. And I noticed, just reading through the text, now you're not going to read that, right? Glenn will read that. But as you're looking at the text, you see all those highlighted terms. And what I was spotting were all of these ka suffixes on the end. The ka suffix, which is the second person singular you suffix, right? Your savior, your creator, I've redeemed you. A lot of the verbs do not fear. A lot of the verbs are second person singular verbs, masculine singular and I started to think, wow, there was a lot of cause. And then I first got the cause, all of these cause, and then a couple of the taws and some of these other things. And then it hit me, these are all second person singular. And it's overwhelming. And it's overwhelming in the first seven verses, the first five verses. And then it kind of goes away for a while. There's a tiny smattering in the middle. But then it really comes back at the end of the chapter. There's your smattering. And then at the end of the chapter... There it is again, and it's jumping at you again in terms of you, 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 all right? So if you think the Bible is all about you, um, well, sort of, (laughs) not really. But in this chapter, there's an awful lot of direct encouragement whereby the Lord himself is speaking to Israel and referring to them as you, all right? You guys, you guys, your Savior, your Creator, your Redeemer, your present help. All right, and uh, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions. But why is he going to do that? For my name's sake. And to me, it's it's just a beautiful feature of the of the poetry of the of the the literature that he goes through all of this you 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 right, and then he emphasizes that's what makes it so dramatic when he says, for my own sake. He says in, in verse twenty five. 
I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. God is acting for him. He is acting for his plan, for his character, for his integrity, for really the uh, eternal purpose in glorifying his son. And so even in a chapter that has such a strong emphasis on you, 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 I believe all of that is just a device to take us to the I. I will do this for my name's sake. And uh, I found that a, an enjoyable feature and wanted to share that with you here this morning. All right, back to, uh, so much for the coloring, back to the, the text itself. When you pass through the waters, well, why would I want to do that? <laughs> I will be with you. And through the rivers, seems to be different than waters. Well, why would I do that? Well, I w- they will not overflow you. Don't worry about those consequences. God's in charge. When you walk through the fire, well, that doesn't sound any fun. I don't want to do that. Well, it doesn't say if. He says when. There will be times of testing that will be characterized by all these different metaphors, by all these different things. You'll notice they're different. And, and fire couldn't be more different than water, right? They're like opposites. And yet there's a full spectrum in view here. Two that are water-based, two that are fire-based. Because we've got water, then rivers, we've got fire, we've got flame. In, uh, again, the poetic structure of this verse. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Why? (laughs) Well, verse 3, for I am the Lord your God. Don't lose uh, the perspective on who's taking you through all of these disciplines. Who's taking you through all of these hardships? Why has he assigned it to you? What is he going to bring about in the process? I am. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. So again, there's all these yous. But your God, your Holy One, your Savior, your ransom, your place. And, and uh, what, a, what a neat reminder to uh, let them be reflecting upon the fact that God's still in charge. He's in charge of all of this, no matter what circumstances he puts us through. God doesn't stop being God because we're going through tough things. Have you ever noticed that? He's still the same God, the same God who created us, the same God who formed us, the same God who redeemed us, the same God who called us. Something catches us off guard out of left field. We didn't know this. And we go, wow. And we're kind of thrown for a loop a little bit. But God knew about it before the foundation of the world. He planned it before the foundation of the world. And he's the same God before that are now that he was before. And so these warnings, these uh, reflections are useful reminders. I think also, besides being just a general metaphor for tough things we go through in life, I think also these specific metaphors are also a survey of Israel's history. Waters, rivers, fire, and flame demonstrate the progressive faithfulness of Yahweh to shepherd his people, Israel. And you can actually track this as a history. They were birthed walking through the waters in the, in the Red Sea. And they're going to be brought into the millennial kingdom through the fire of the tribulation. All right, the millennial, uh, the, the tribulational fire, what, Jesus, or what John the Baptist promised, the baptism of fire that Israel will have to go through in order to enter into their millennial kingdom. And so from waters to rivers to fire to flame, we have a progression. You ever notice that? 
that there was only one Red Sea test. They didn't have to face that test over and over and over again. That was the one test that that was achieved. That was the one uh, deliverance that was achieved when they were birthed as a nation, when they were brought out of bondage from Egypt. And the reason why that's a once and only once kind of test is because salvation is a once and only once event. You only get saved once. And you get saved once, you're eternally secure. There's never any reparting of the Red Sea to go back into Egypt. And so we work our way through this verse and we can kind of see a spectrum of Old Testament history. We can see a spectrum of Old Testament deliverance. And uh, whether it's uh, Exodus 14, verses 13 through 31. All right, Exodus 14. Um, this might be where I can save some time. <laughs> Not reading uh, 19 verses there. Um, but we're familiar with the Exodus event. We saw the movie, right? Charlton Heston and puts his rod up there, the waters part, and through the sea. Some through the waters, okay? With, maybe we're not as familiar with Okay, I'll skip Exodus 14. Just write it down and keep it on hand. You can read it on your own time or show it to a neighbor and uh, teach the doctrine there. Joshua chapter 3. Let's fast forward in time 40 years through the wilderness. And uh, we get to Joshua chapter 3 and they're getting ready to uh, go in and conquer. And they're getting ready. But, and it's the next generation that's getting ready because of that first generation of the, old, of the Exodus generation, those that walked through the Red Sea, they're all dead. Only two are living now of that whole generation that was 20 and up when they walked through the Red Sea. And so now it's a new generation. And uh, what's God going to do for this generation? He's going to reassure them, guess what? <laughs> it's a new generation, but I'm still the same God. From generation to generation, I'm still He, I'm still faithful. And some of them may be a little bit leery to say, well, yeah, Moses was a great guy and everything, and Moses is who got us out of Egypt, but we don't have Moses anymore. How are we going to go into Canaan? How are we going to go in and conquer seven nations larger and mightier than ourselves? The smallest of those seven nations was larger and mightier than Israel. And they're going to go in and destroy seven of them in the conquest. And uh, no Moses to do it. They're going to have Joshua to do it. And so what's interesting is the Lord takes Joshua, puts him in this position of leadership, tells him, do not be afraid. The same language as we have today in Isaiah 43. Stop being afraid. Do not fear. I am with you. And he allows Moses a miracle comparable to the Moses miracle. I think in some ways even more powerful than the Moses miracle in the sense of, okay, parting the Red Sea is impressive. I get that. But a river is constantly flowing and this river is going to be parted as well. And this is maybe not as well known. We read about it in Joshua three fourteen, and go all the way down to chapter 4 and verse 24. And that's a very long stretch to read here. We'll just grab a couple of these verses. When the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, uh, verse 16, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap and a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. So now you know exactly where that was. And those uh, which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. 
And so here we have another amphibious crossing that's, you know, analogous to the Red Sea crossing, but in some respects it's even more impressive, I think, with, uh, with the flowing river coming that direction the way that it does. And so they cross. And um, the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. And then we get it here. They're going to put a monument up. They're going to do some things. Anyway, there's an example. And so there's a difference. Some through the water, some through the flood, okay, as the hymn that we sang, or some through the water, some through the river, as the text of uh, Isaiah 43 talks about. And then fire, you know, a lot of fire judgments. You think about the, the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, 19 through 26. You think about fire in terms of their Babylonian captivity. When it came time to discipline Israel to remove them from the promised land, he did not send them back into Egypt again. As I said, Egypt is a one-way door. Salvation is a one-time event. You never lose your salvation. You never go back to being an unregenerate state. Israel was still a redeemed people even when they were in captivity. But they were in captivity in Babylon. And the judgment there was not water-based. The judgment there was fire-based, at least in terms of the uh, fiery furnace of Daniel chapter 3. Okay? It also became lion-based in chapter 6, but that's, that's a different story. All right. And so we have the fire, Daniel chapter 3, 19 through 26. And not only were the, the boys were protected, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, but even uh, they weren't burned, their clothes weren't scorched, there was nothing uh, even smoky about their, uh, about their clothes, okay? And uh, the, the miracle of God's preservation is there. Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 is eschatological. As the, John the Baptist says, uh, I baptize you with water, but guess what? After me comes one who will baptize you with fire, the Holy Spirit and with fire. All right, so there is a future fire judgment that Israel has to go through. And it's necessary for them to go through it. And in fact, if they don't go through it, they'll never be humbled to accept their Messiah. It is absolutely necessary in the plan of God for Israel to undergo this baptism of fire in order to humble them as a nation so that all Israel will be saved as God promised. All right, well, I'll skip over Daniel 3 as well. You can, you can read that as well. You can watch the Veggie Tale if you want. That's the Rack Shack and Benny Veggie Tale where they get pizza delivered and the Anyway, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. Everything the nation of Israel goes through, including the Nazi Holocaust, including anything in modern times, throughout their history, up to and including, obviously, the greatest judgment they've ever gone through, the the coming tribulation of Israel, God is still the faithful God who's bringing them through to the other side. Absolutely bringing them through to the other side. All right, for I am the Lord your God. I am, I love that language, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight, you are honored and I love you. I will give other men in your place and other people in exchange for your life. You know who you're devoted to by, sometimes I say when push comes to shove, what gets pushed and what gets shoved, right? When it comes down to it, when you lay down your life, who do you lay down your life for? For Yahweh, it's this covenant nation of Israel. 
And uh, we see here, verse 5, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Okay? You know, when they came back from Babylon, it wasn't a global regathering. It was a limited regathering. And more stayed in Babylon than went back to, to Israel. But at second advent, through the tribulation, God is going to bring back every Jewish person from the face of the planet. I suspect there are going to be a lot of folks that don't even know they're Jewish. <laughs> and they're going to be regathered and brought into the land. It's going to be a news flash to them that they're Jewish. Okay? Maybe some Bolanders are Jewish. We don't know. All right? Who knows? God does. He's got complete and total tracking of every Jewish person on this planet from father to son, father to son, father to son. Even though the rabbis start swapping around in the Middle Ages to a matriarchal um, um, way of reckoning. All right? Good thing God's still in charge. The millennial kingdom is not merely promised to Israel but specifically to redeemed Israel. That is so important. I stop with verse 6, but notice verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. And there we finally get to Asa. Now we've got three different terms for create, fashion, and make in verse 7. But everyone who is called by my name. Simply being racially Jewish isn't going to save you or usher you into the millennial kingdom. There will be unbelieving Jews that are going to be executed at the end of the tribulation, assuming they somehow survive the tribulation. All right? The wilderness judgment of Israel in Exodus chapter 20, or Ezekiel chapter 20, proves that the rebels are purged. Only believers enter the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so it's everyone who is called by my name. Remember, not all Israel is Israel. But everyone who is called by my name. Born again, regenerate Jewish people. Born again, Jewish people will will be the the beginning of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. That first generation will be 100% saved to start the thousand year reign. Now by the end, there will be plenty of unbelievers around. But to start the millennial kingdom is 100% saved individuals. Same chapter, glance down to verse 20 and verse 21. The, um, the people whom I formed for myself, okay? Even the animals and the, and the creation are going to testify, as it says in verse 20. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and ostriches, because I've given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Who are the chosen people? Israel, the Jewish people. But the choice, understand the, the, the call of God, they're called by His name, references regenerate Israel, not just racial Jews. Not just racial Jews. They were banking on that during Jesus' ministry. And He said, hey, don't say that you've got Abraham for your father. You think that means anything? Jesus said He could raise up stones to be children of Abraham. Big deal. But to be born again, to be saved by grace through faith, my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. Born again, regenerate believers to start the millennial kingdom of Israel. So the millennial kingdom is not merely promised to Israel. See, this is the thing. Folks get misguided. They get maladjusted to prophecy. They start thinking in terms of politics. 
They start thinking in terms of economics or military solutions or something in secular life, something in terms of, of just in the earthly realm. It's not earthly. It is a spiritual deliverance. And the preaching of the kingdom is the preaching of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why was the baptizer shouting repentance every time he was ministering there in, in, uh, in the Gospels? The preaching of the kingdom is the message of repentance. It'll be the same in the tribulation. It'll be a message of repentance because in the tribulation, the kingdom will once again be at hand and the one who endures to the end will be saved in the tribulation of enduring through the judgments that fall upon the face of the earth. All right. Not merely promised to uh, secular Israel or genetic Israel or racial Israel. The millennial kingdom is not simply a racial kingdom to Jewish people, but to born again Jewish people in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Likewise, Isaiah is not the only prophet that deals with this. Joel, Joel chapter 2. Let's make sure we're clear on Joel chapter 2. Peter made use of Joel 2 in his Pentecost uh, sermon of Acts chapter 2. And uh, people want to take that the wrong way as well. All right. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 32. Notice what the context is for all of this. It's the, uh, the wrath of God. It's the judgment upon the earth. It's the, it's the uh, darkening of the sun, moon, and stars. It's all the... Uh, I'm in the wrong book. Joel. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Where's my Joel? There we are. Joel chapter 2. So it's the Lord's deliverance of his people. We've got sun, moon, and stars that are darkened. We've got uh, locusts, the great locust invasions that are here. Wonders in the sky and the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. This is all future, folks. This hadn't happened yet. Um, it's after these things that I in verse 28 that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind that did not happen in Jerusalem on Sunday, May 24th of 33 AD. All right. It happened on a limited basis in the upper room to the apostles to about 120 people. And then it happened in progressive stages throughout the world. As you read through the book of Acts, various other people received the Holy Spirit. This prophecy is of a global outpouring. I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. That's why we have to get the believers off of the planet. We got to, All the unbelieving Gentiles, unbelieving Jews are all going to go to hell. Only believers will enter the Millennial Kingdom. And once the planet is 100% regenerate, saved people only on the planet, the Holy Spirit can descend and fill everybody. I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Now, Jews and Gentiles make up all mankind, but it is your sons and daughters that will prophesy. The Jewish people not only receive the Holy Spirit, but are ushered into prophetic office. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will, will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Again, your, 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 apply to uh, Joel here, is the Jewish people. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. There will be Gentiles volunteering for slavery to, to reside in the, with the Jewish people in the nation of Israel, to be in a close proximity with Jesus Christ. Your uh, male and female servants receive the Holy Spirit in those days. The whole world does. 
But verse 32 here will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved or will be delivered. For on the Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Take this prophecy and put it in its tribulational perspective, waiting for the day of the Lord, waiting for the victory at Armageddon, waiting for the deliverance or the salvation that will usher Israel into their redeemed millennial kingdom. Their redeemed millennial kingdom. Not just a political deliverance. It is a salvation deliverance. Okay? And that's the background for Romans 10, 13. Of all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. People get all bent out of shape over Matthew 10, because it, or Romans chapter 10. Believe in your heart, confess with your lips, and, and they, they don't want to keep Romans 10 where it belongs. In the fulfillment of Deuteronomy, in the fulfillment of Isaiah, in the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 and verse 32 specifically. Okay, if you want more on that, remind yourself of what we looked at in the Romans series when we were in Romans chapter 10. Verses 8 through 13. You see this whole emphasis. Let me get back now to Isaiah. (laughs) Everyone who is called by my name. See, not just an earthly nation that's called corporately, but individually. Everyone, the individual response of of an individual Jewish person to either trust in Christ or not trust in Christ for eternal life. You understand the difference? A people that are called, but individuals who are called. And uh, that's a distinction sometimes gets lost. But uh, the, the need for repentance as the kingdom is proclaimed. You know, was this, the disciples, were they all wrapped up in this? <laughs> you know, Judas wasn't even a believer. And he was eager for the kingdom, right? And you wonder what Simon the Zealot, what was his motivation? He's part of the, the assassin crew, the terrorist crew of his day, uh, sticking the long knives into Romans every chance they got. Okay? That's what the Zealot party was all about. Well, were they really all that wrapped up in, uh, in, the, in repentance? The salvation stuff? No, just get rid of Rome. Let's usher in the kingdom. Let's put, let's put the heir of David on David's throne and start, you know, having dominion over those nasty Romans, over all the Gentile peoples. Repent? Believe? That was, uh, that was not a focus for a lot of the Jewish people during Christ's earthly ministry. All right. God calls a nation to bear witness. Verses 8 through 13 is the summons that God calls for the nation of Israel to be his uh, testimony. And interestingly enough, he picks uh, probably the worst witnesses you ever could imagine. All right? If you're in court and your life depends on it, and you need an eyewitness that you're innocent, um, calling a blind guy may not be your best choice. All right? Or calling a, a deaf person to the stand and, and grilling them on what they've heard might not be your best defense in, uh, in a capital murder trial or something to, when, when your neck is hanging out there, right? But think about what God does. After he's already stipulated how blind they are, how deaf they are, how, uh, how they have rejected him throughout all of Old Testament history, he still says, you're my witnesses. Because while blind, they won't stay blind. While deaf, they won't stay deaf. That through the judgment of the tribulation, through the fire that, that uh, purifies them, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. Not only the, the physical maladies 
in, in, a, in a medical type sense. But spiritually speaking, spiritually blind Israel will see. They will look upon him whom they pierced. They will see their Christ and realize that this is his second advent about to unfold. They will see the Christ and realize that they crucified him in his first advent. You understand how humbling that's going to be? The necessity of this? All right, and so we see it here, verses 8 through 13. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. Israel will be the, the witness nation. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. You know, think about it. They're gathering together to destroy the Jews. They've gathered together their armies to annihilate the Jewish people. And God says, great, glad that you're all in one place. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you're wondering why I asked you together this morning, right? I've gathered you together, like a, like a start of a wedding or something. We've gathered together today, all right, so that my people can testify. My blind, deaf, rebellious, stiff-necked, but now repentant people can testify. All the nations have gathered together. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is true. All these Gentile nations and all of their gods, we've already seen the idols were challenged to testify in the previous chapter. Now the Gentiles are being challenged to testify. Tell us what you know, all right? What are the gods of the Greeks able to tell about the things that have happened and the things that are about to happen? What about the gods of the Romans? What about the gods of the, of the uh, Germans, the gods of the Norse? Okay, we've got some, some nifty mythology here with Odin and Zeus and Thor and all this stuff. But, you know, on this occasion, they're useless they are absolutely useless. What is it that Islamic eschatology is going to be able to testify to? What is it that Mormon eschatology will be able to testify to? What are the Jehovah's Witnesses going to have to say on this day? All right, when Jesus Christ is standing before them, all of their prophecies are false. Okay, what are the Seventh-day Adventists going to say? Ellen White was a false prophetess. They have nothing to say. Charles Taze Russell, a false prophet. What are, they, what are they going to say? All right. And so they're all being brought. Present your witnesses. All right. You've got all these systematic uh, theologies and eschatologies and all these things. Last chance to prove righteousness. And they can't do it. All right. How about Israel? Israel can. Israel can testify. Repentant Israel can testify that God has laid this plan forth from long ago. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen. Back in chapter 42 is the servant Messiah. Remember, it was a singular Christ who was my servant, my chosen one, in whom I delight. Now it's the nation, it's the Jewish people, the servant nation whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe and understand. I love the, there's, there's triplets in here. There's this, in the poetry of this, we've got these trinities, we've got these triplets. So that you may know and believe and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed. There will be none after me. I, even I, am Yahweh. There is no Savior besides me. 
Forget Allah. Forget all these chumps, okay? Fallen angels posing as God are not God. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. Another beautiful triplet there, right? I have declared and saved and proclaimed. What a, what a genius plan. You might even take that verse if you'd like and turn it into an outline of the Bible. Declared in the Old Testament. Saved, there's Jesus in the Gospels. Proclaimed, there's the epistles after the Gospels. You know, get a little threefold uh, outline here. This is what God has done. He has declared and saved and proclaimed and nobody else has done anything like that. There was no strange God among you So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am the only being that preceded time, the very creator of time. From eternity, I am. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? What precious promises. God is the only I am. If you think about it, we got these stupid little expressions you know got to get up pretty early in the morning to pull one over uh you know whatever well you got to get up before the foundation of the earth how about that you got to get up you got to you got to be self-existent before anything else came into existence because i act and who can thwart it he uttered his decrees before any creature was there to object or to stop or to thwart, or to hold his hand and try to ward off what's coming next. Uh, From eternity, I am. What a powerful statement. All right, so God calls a nation to bear witness. It's the Jewish nation. It's the nation of Israel, a people blind in death presently, yet unique among all the nations of the earth. And that's what they were called to be, the chosen people, the people with, that God revealed himself to. The, the, uh, <clears throat> they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's why their advantage was great in every respect. The assembled nations are invited to bear witness, but none of them can. All right, I didn't even talk about the East. I mean, there's going to be a lot of Buddhists and Hindus and all kinds of folks. And again, they're going to be invited. They're going to be invited. All right, testify now. Testify to your entire cosmology. How have you brought mankind to this point right here, right now? None of them have, okay? Buddha didn't do it. Confucius didn't do it. All of the assembled nations are invited to bear witness, but none of them can. Last week or week before, I forget now, we talked about the testimony from the chosen servant. Christ testifies. The nations testify. Israel testifies. Even the demons are invited to testify. He allows them to even collaborate together, work together on the project, if that'll help. They still can't testify to what God has done, what God is about to do. The Alpha to Omega, only God can declare and save and proclaim. Israel must know and believe and understand. And I like that trinity. Know and believe and understand. I think there's a pattern for us as well in what we know, what we believe, and what we understand. And I think it's, it's, it's a useful um, representative of epistemology as far as how you and I can know anything and how we can believe based on what we know. 
We can refute the skeptics out there and the God-haters out there that think that belief is some kind of an inferior knowing and that, that somehow you, you know what you know and then when you can't know something, well then all that you can do is, is then just believe it. Okay? That's not pistuo in the Greek. That's not pistis and that's not uh, any biblical definition of faith. That's, uh, that's the definition of pretending something, <laughs> right? And we don't pretend something. We don't believe in nothing. Our faith is grounded in an object. Our faith is grounded in promises made by the faithful one who cannot lie. That's faith. And, and how can you believe if, if no one preaches, all right? The knowledge precedes faith because you have to be persuaded by that knowledge to trust in the information you've received, to trust in the purpose of Christ, So Israel must know and believe and understand. See, now we have a final process whereby which we cycle doctrine, whereby which now not only do we know and have faith, but we're brought into greater understanding. Not just knowledge, but understanding. That's why we're we're highlighting that in Proverbs right now. Acquire wisdom, and with your wisdom, acquire what? Understanding. Okay? Because Yahweh has declared and saved and proclaimed Declared and saved and proclaimed. In some respects, the very format of the Bible is a great tool for us in any uh, apologetic context, in a, in a variety of different applications. The fact that God spoke to the fathers in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. We have the progression from Old Testament to Christ, and then the New Testament after Christ. That's just a genius way to reveal His will in His Scriptures. And we can use that. We can actually use the progressive unfolding plan of God in demonstrating, I think, the comprehensive nature of what God has revealed. So we can know and believe and understand because Yahweh has declared and saved and proclaimed that it comes together in a systematic whole. This is what uh, Charlie Clough terms his framework approach to the Scripture. And it's not just taking individual little Bible verses out of context, but putting all the scriptures into a systematic whole. H-W-H-O-L-E, whole, okay? Don't lose your W. (laughs) And so, lots of ways I can illustrate with this. Um, But the, uh, you know, if I do, I may run out of time. The, um, the pattern of this, I've actually, with Muslims, I've used this. And because they have twisted, perverted Bible stories that kind of based on the Old Testament a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, as far as the Muslims will tell it, it wasn't Isaac that Abraham was going to sacrifice. It was Ishmael that Abraham was going to sacrifice. And because uh, Ishmael was the firstborn, Ishmael is uh, the plan of Allah is through Ishmael, not through Isaac. And uh, you start talking to these Muslims about their, their make-believe stories and stuff, and it's plain and simple that obviously they change the names around centuries later and, and trying to pass it off as real. But then you ask yourself, well, why? Why? Because they will also tell you that on the cross, Jesus didn't die on the cross. They'll tell you that it just appeared that he died on the cross, that he was caught up to heaven without dying, and that somebody else was substituted in his place. Somebody else died instead of Jesus who died. And they'll tell you all this stuff. And then you can sit down with this Muslim and say, your, your, your text here doesn't make any sense. 
Why do you have the foreshadowing? Okay, I even I'll grant for the sake of argument, it was Ishmael. Fine, who cares? We'll say it was. But if it was, then why in the, in the fulfillment of that from type to reality, why then did Jesus not die on, or why did he not die on the cross? You understand the point? Isaac was spared, but Jesus could not be. I, the, a substitute was provided for Isaac with Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, but there is no substitute for Jesus. He is the only one who is qualified to do the work of atonement on the cross. And so if you have a shadow and you have a fulfillment, you've got the Old Testament, you've got the New Testament, we don't need this Quran. It's just a pack of lies anyway, and it's inconsistent with everything else that came before. In any event, um, I think that that approach brought a man back out of Islam and back under biblical Christianity. A guy that was saved in his childhood and then got kind of caught up in Islam because it was a racial trendy thing to do with the Farrakhan crowd. All right? But convinced that the lies were the lies and the truth was the truth, what are you going to do? You're going to testify to the truth. Absolutely going to testify to the truth. That's why I like it. Even when, they're witness, even when the Gentiles are offered the chance in verse 9, he said, present your case so you can self-justify or else hear my case and say it is true. <laughs> All right? Once you've utterly failed to make your own case and self-justify, then listen to my case and say it is true. And that's what God says there in verse 9. Let them hear and say it is true. Now, God's planning and activity is from eternity with no peer to hinder his good pleasure. God's planning and activity is from eternity. No peer to hinder his good pleasure. You know, if you read the mythology of the Greeks, you know, Zeus and Poseidon and Hades, and you realize they are always bickering and fighting and thwarting one another. You know, Zeus wants to do this, but somebody tricked him into that. And uh, then he gets mad because he got tricked. You know, talk about chumps. Okay, these, these fallen angels posing as gods. You know, you and I, we get the greatest plans in the world, but we can't always make them happen because we're limited. We're finite limited. We, we don't have the resources, the money, the time, the ability or whatever. We've got a lot of great ideas. We just can't actualize those ideas, okay? I still can't materialize cheeseburgers just by saying so. We've got ideas, but we get thwarted. God never gets thwarted. And this becomes a dominant theme. In fact, this, uh, it gets even more blatant in chapter 46. We've already seen part of it uh, expressed in chapter 14. Isaiah 14, his uniqueness, his uniqueness. There's no shadow of turning. There's, there's, he's unique, Absolutely self-existent, absolutely sovereign. In fourteen twenty-seven, after uh, Satan thought he could be God, I will, I will, I will. God, uh, no. He says, "The Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? As for his stretched-out hand, who can turn it back? If he reaches his hand out, there is nobody going to slap it away." Chapter 46 and verse 10, we hear in three weeks, actually four weeks, in the uh, Lost Pines double church service coming up, uh, we'll have a week off from Isaiah. 
But Isaiah 46.10, verse 9 says, Remember former things long past. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. All. Not most. Not a lot. You know, bad 300, be happy with it. No. All my good pleasure. God accomplishes it. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Deuteronomy. I hope these verses are an encouragement to you. I know we still got a final section to go in the chapter, but I want to hit these. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Do you need some reminders that God is God and we're not? See now that I, I am He. There is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded. It is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Which is not only a frightening thing to think about in terms of judgment, but it's also a precious thing to think about in terms of eternal security. If no one can deliver out of his hand, it's a good thing he's holding us in his hand. <laughs> okay, who's going to snatch me out of his hand? We can be thankful for that. Psalm 90, also written by Moses. Same author as Deuteronomy, is the author of Psalm 90. It's a Mosaic psalm. And uh, didn't know that? All right, Psalm 90, prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Existent before the alpha moment, existent after the omega moment, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So who's going to thwart him? Who's going to stop what he wants to do? Proverbs 8, 22 and 23. Stay tuned for this in the book of Proverbs. I can't wait. We're still, we're still uh, in chapter 6. We just started chapter 6, actually, on Wednesday mornings. But when we get to chapter 8, we have the birthing of the humanity of Christ. The Lord begat me, says possessed, acquired me, birthed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. Well, when was that? From everlasting, I was established. Now, if only God is everlasting, how can Jesus claim to be everlasting? Well, because Jesus is God, okay? From everlasting, I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. It's a childbearing term. I was birthed. When there were no springs abounding in with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. You know, we look at the mountains and we think, wow, they've been there for a long, long time, okay? Because they erode so, so slowly, <laughs> whatever. We got this uniformitarian concept. We got this evolutionary view. No, they haven't been there that long. All right, God put them there and he'll shake them. In fact, they're going to be destroyed when everything else is destroyed. Daniel 4 and verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this and he had to learn it the hard way. Daniel 4 and verse 35. I, I was reading, there's a guy that lived as a goat. And he was going around in Switzerland, living as a goat for three days with a bunch of other goats. And uh, what is this lunatic doing? Well, here's Nebuchadnezzar who did it for seven years until his reason returned to him. 
But this is what he had to learn. Uh, in verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can warn off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? not only can you not stop his hand you can't even verbally criticize him afterwards what have you done now look at you what have you done right like the epa poisoning a river what have you done okay no one can thwart the plan of god or say to him what have you done? His planning and activity is from eternity with no peer. And so, by the way, in, in this particular test of what you're going through, this health test, financial test, job test, relationship test, whatever, the God from all eternity has a handle on all of it. He's in charge. He will use it for his good pleasure. And don't grumble about why you're where you are. Be thankful that he's with you. He's going to bring you through it. Finally, 14 through 28. Israel will be restored from their global dispersion, not by works of righteousness, which they have done. All right? They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. As we read 14 through 28, the rest of the chapter here is all about what God is doing for his own name's sake, for himself, not for them. Even your own salvation, you know, is not for you. It's for his son. God the Father wanted to give a bride to his son. And so you and I got saved. Isn't that great? And we think it's about us. We think it's for our sake because we benefit. Obviously, we benefit by not going to hell. That's a great benefit, but it's not for us. All things are for him, through him and for him. Likewise, when he delivers the Jewish people and gives them a millennial kingdom, it's, uh, it's not because they deserved it. In fact, uh, yeah, they didn't uh, earn this. They didn't deserve this. They weren't humble. They weren't faithful. Okay, you haven't called on me, Jacob, verse 22. You haven't, you've become weary of me, O Israel. You haven't brought to me the sheep of burnt offerings. You haven't honored me with sacrifices. But I am the one, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. You know, when you confess your sins in 1 John 1, 9, do you lay out a list of what you've earned and deserved? Say, God, please forgive me. I'm really, really sorry. I won't do it again. I'm really, really sorry. I'll be a better person. I'll stop doing that. I'll, I'll serve you, Lord. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll double my, my, my money that I give to the church. No, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, they haven't earned it. They haven't deserved it. Their national salvation will make them forget all previous salvations. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Once they are brought into Israel in the second advent, once they're brought into the millennial kingdom, they're no longer going to talk about the exodus. They're no longer going to talk about the God who parted the Red Sea and brought them out of Egypt. All right? You take verse 18 of this chapter and you relate it to Jeremiah 23, verses 7 and 8, and you realize that the exodus won't be commemorated. It's going to be this event that gets commemorated, the regathering from the four corners of the earth. They do not earn or deserve salvation by any merit of their own. Verses 22 through 24. 
You have brought me not sweet cane with money, nor have filled me with a fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you've burdened me with your sins, and you've wearied me with your iniquities. You know, if it was up to what you've earned and deserved, I'd wipe you out. <laughs> and yet God faithfully and sovereignly chooses to not remember their sins. Now, in omniscience, you can't forget, but you can choose with omnipotence to not actively remember the things you choose to not actively remember. And so he says, I wipe out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. He can't stop being omniscient, but he can choose to no longer actively bring those sins to his thinking. Plus, he puts them in a bag. He throws them behind his back into the depths of the sea. We saw those verses a couple weeks ago. He also welcomes our confession to his testimony. Wish I had more time. Because he invites them. He says, put me in remembrance. As long as there's things I'm not remembering, you put me in remembrance and let us argue our case together. State your case that you may be proved right. He's inviting them in their witness to confess, to make the same testimony he's making. And that's important too. I'm just running out of time on this. The tribulation of Israel places them under the ban as objects of revilement. Do you know why the tribulation is so horrendous? Because he's putting them under the ban. As verse 28 says, I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. The haram, the ban, is a devotion to destruction. And this is what Jericho was all about. This is what the uh, story in Joshua 2 is about and Joshua 6 is about. I just encourage you to read those verses. Read, read those chapters. Utterly destroyed. Even uh, the fellow that tried to steal a little silver cup and hide it in his tent. God says, no. Utter destruction. I want, I want no remembrance of that wicked Jericho. And as you read through those chapters, you're going to learn that there was a harlot that was saved out of that town. And you're going to learn that God knows how to rescue the godly. God knows how to save even in a haram devoted to destruction judgment. And that's what he's going to do to Israel. Utterly destroy Israel and yet utterly save Israel. Okay? Utterly destroy them and yet utterly save them. Well, man, it's the reason why it's be kind of good to teach this over 20 chapters or 20 Sundays instead of one Sunday per chapter, but that's the format we've got. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time. I pray that we would have an understanding of these things, that you open the eyes of our understanding, that we would read these chapters over and over again in the coming weeks, that we'd be mindful, Father, of how ferocious this tribulation is going to be and why it needs to be so ferocious for the utter haram destruction of the rebellion against you and yet the rescue of every faithful Rahab, <laughs> every faithful, repentant Jewish person that places their faith in Christ, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Father, all who call upon the Lord will be saved. I thank you for this truth. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.